The Symposium on Egyptian Popular Culture, Produce, Consume, Conserve, held in the Grand Salon at the American Research Center in Cairo, brought academics, conservators, and practitioners together in conversation about how their work addresses the question of what is popular, how it's consumed by the AMA, or general public, and how we can preserve material for a changing AMA. After all, without academics, we might not have a written record of popular culture and the AMA that consumed it. Without conservators and heritage professionals, we might have little left to help us understand how the AMA of the past existed. And without practitioners, there would be no popular culture for the AMA to consume. Conversations such as the ones we were privy to and participated in serve to bridge these gaps and prompt the audience to consider how they partake in the consumption and preservation of everyday objects and mediums. Over the course of the two-day symposium, we were guided through downtown Cairo on a cultural heritage walking tour and heard and digested conversations on architectural heritage, producing material for the public, popular history and living religious heritage, and museums, followed by conversations about books, design, photography, and film, and a roundtable discussion contemplating what is popular. This podcast was recorded live in downtown Cairo, steps away from Tahrir Square. You're likely to hear some ambient noise as well as the clinking of teacups in the background. It's not so much a distraction as an opportunity for you to step into our space and join us. The roundtable you're about to hear is titled Producing Material for the Public. You'll be hearing from Mohammed El Shahid, independent scholar, curator, and architectural historian, N.A. Mansour, PhD candidate, Princeton University, editor of Hazanin Blog, and podcast producer, and M. Lynx Quayley, founding editor, Arab Lit, and co-host of the Bulak podcast. I have been tasked with going first out of this illustrious roundtable. It is such an honor, actually, to be sitting here with Muhammad and Marsha, who I've admired for so long. Um, I mean, since I was a kid, basically, Marsha. Muhammad. Muhammad, you know, it depends on the day. Um, I'm always a kid. Never <laughs> stop. So, um, we'll each be speaking for about five minutes, and we'll speak amongst ourselves, and then we'll open it up to all of you. So, producing on the public, uh, for the public, not on the public, we'll speak about that tomorrow. This is really why I decided to become an academic, and it was because of frustration. I was frustrated with how little material was getting to the public, especially because, you consider what, I mean, I was 18 when I got to the U.S. I was First time I was living in the U.S. It was the first time I was in an American academic setting, and as this little, you know, 18-year-old fresh from this side of the world, I grew up partially in the West Bank, partially in the Khadij, partially in Southeast Asia. You get to a U.S. university campus, and you're just confused because people don't know much about where you come from. You know, I grew up with kids from all over. Even when I was living in Palestine, I grew up in a multicultural household. And I was used to interacting with people who were different from me in some way. And I get to the US and everyone thinks the same. Everyone doesn't know much about my religion, doesn't know much about the countries that I come from, and I was confused and frustrated. 
And I didn't want to consume the Western canon, as I was being told, you know, read Hegel, read the classics, you know, Greek and Roman philosophy. And instead, I fled back to some studies and Middle Eastern history. And even there, I was so frustrated. Uh, I was so frustrated with my professors. There were these people who wrote books on specialist issues that were important to me and the people that I lived with and that I continued to live with in my heart. And they weren't getting any of this information out. One day in my frustration, I told one of the professors I was closest to, I told them, Islamophobia today in America, and of course Islamophobia in the US has an even more detrimental effect on Muslims living outside America than it does inside America. I told them Islamophobia in the American context would look so different if you stopped writing these books that were only read by maybe 50 to 100 people and you actually wrote an informed editorial written in a way that was accessible to the public. So, as frustrated as I was, I decided to apply to graduate school and to work on these issues. And when I got to graduate school, I was just as frustrated. I felt that people weren't interested in writing to the public. They were interested in writing well footnoted pieces of research that again, wouldn't be read by many people or only read by people who could afford the very expensive books that academics produce. I am encouraged though, and it is again because of the people sitting beside me who have dedicated their lives to bring material to the public. I mean, can I, can I brag about you guys? <laughs> and embarrass you both thoroughly. I mean, Muhammad, I mean, when you were a graduate student, Cairo Observer, written both in Armenia and in English, and it was accessible, and people, it really resonated with people. When I speak to young Egyptians, you know, who are young, younger back in 2011 and 2012 when you were first producing, they speak about your blog, and they say that it had an impact on them, and that it, it raised their spirits and made them proud of where they came from. But people say this to me constantly, Muhammad, like that, 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 that all the work you continue to do, the curation, the new book, which maybe we'll have a peek at soon, um, it's amazing. I saw the PDF. It's not as beautiful as the physical edition, but still. I mean, this is really, I mean, again, producing an Ammania, this, this gets out in a way that even English content does not. And this is, again, a core flaw, actually, of this symposium is that we're speaking together in English. I mean, inshallah, like, we'll be speaking out of me next time. Um, and then Marshall's work, of course, I mean, when I first encountered it, it was a window, I mean, I knew all the classics of Arabic literature, but it was a window to a world that I didn't know. It highlighted authors that I previously really didn't have access to. And it was also exposing people who are anglophone to the work. I mean, I think inevitably your work is exposing English language audiences who wouldn't otherwise interact with Arabs or Muslims or people from other parts of the Arabic-speaking world to this kind of content and these kinds of ideas. And for that, I really applaud you. So again, we have two really great examples, both publications. And I think that the world is really opening up. We have podcasting now. Academics are using creative ways of expressing themselves through sound. Um, they're curating things like Muhammad again. Um, they're more active on Twitter, both in Arabic and in English. But this isn't enough, and I'll close with this. What we need to start doing more actively is not saying, hey, I think a blog would be interesting. I think what we need to do is say actively, you, we need to ask people what they want to consume. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so I will uh, follow that. Um, and, and I wanted to talk a, a little bit to begin with with what I mean by by popular culture, and it's not necessarily about numbers as much as it's about 
being, um, being more organic, out, produced outside of officialdom. So it's, it's not about whether it's 70,000 or 700,000 or 7 million people are exposed to it, but that it is, um, it, it's not, and it's not about being a particular genre or about who's producing it. It could be an academic producing popular culture. It could be, um, could be me in my apartment producing popular culture. It's about the project itself taking place outside of, of officialdom. Um, and in terms of uh, produce, concern, consume, preserve, to talk about those three points, um, I think literature itself, as, as it, it's mostly practiced most, in most of the world, uh, of course people do know about the classics from, from their time in, um, in probably in high school and university. Um, but as we talk about literature, we tend to be focused on you know, the new thing that is just newly published now. And it, the things that appear in newspapers, the things that are, are talked about most often are the thing that is happening right now. It is the biggest thing. It's the thing that's being, being given the award, etc. cetera. Um, and, and of course, every new author coming up, part of the great uh, reason why people want to, to write and publish is to make their particular voice heard. Um, and, and I think, you know, you see this uh, again and again, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, the a piece that I was most recently working on was interviewing a group of young Yemeni authors who were just did um, a workshop with, in, in Sana'a. And, and all of them have, have come up during this, this time of war, but it's despite all the difficulties, the, the imperative to, to create literature and to make their voice heard is, is tremendous. Um, so where does, so there, there's an audience for it, despite extreme difficulties in, in getting books around Yemen. And there are people who want to produ produce it. And then in terms of preserving it, that, um, that's a thing that I want to focus on because I think it's an important part of um, what I do um, and what, what the sort of the literary critic writ large, whether you want to call it a critic or, or not, um, uh, that, that, is, that is the sort of part of the role of the literary critic. Why is it important to, to preserve or, or to bring together many different voices rather than just you know, the, the top thing that's happening right now, the thing that won the award, the, the bestseller? Uh, to, to bring together the voices from 20 years ago, from, from 40 years ago, from 100 years ago, from, from different parts of the region, to, to help preserve this, the, you know, a literary critic is, I think, you know, um, a, a voice that is uh, marginalized currently in many different contexts, but it is a voice that can broaden our literary context con considerably. Uh, uh, as different from the academic context. So the academic context can kind of preserve for this small and particular audience um, the popular critic, which includes the, you know, people who publish on Twitter, Facebook, this kind of listicle criticism, all these kinds of popular canon, um, keep uh, this, this, this form of criticism, Goodreads, all these things, is a, a, this form of popular uh, criticism makes a criticism in the um, public sphere. And things that I've you know, focused on recently uh, uh, in terms of popular forms of criticism include these social media criticisms, but also uh, Egyptian literary podcasts, 
of which I think is the most, thus far the most promising form of, of literary criticism, particularly the one that uh, Yusuf Rafa hosts, um, is kind of the most promising, interesting, vibrant form of, of literary criticism that moves <coughs> outside of the space of officialdom. And then also, I, uh, I also watch a lot of booktube, so YouTube channels of, of young Egyptians. They're all exclusively young that I've found talking about books um, in these short segments on YouTube. And, and they have become, you know, you know uh, tens of thousands of listeners, not enormously popular, but, you know, 70,000 people regularly watching once a week is, is not tiny. Um, and, and, mo and mostly now they are this sort of listicle-type form, but I think it still has a lot of potential to reach uh, new audiences and to bring together the different kinds of things that, that, a, cri that a critic, somebody who we reads widely and can bring these different voices together, put them in a constellation, uh, can do to keep things inside, in the, in the living memory of, of a literature. Mohammed, I turn to you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll pick up some threads from, from things you both said. I think uh, maybe to start, um, the way I understand popular culture um, is it's important to remember that practitioners of popular culture, people who live popular culture, don't wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to do some popular culture. This is already a position coming from outside that decides that this realm is popular and that this is official and so on. So I think um, it's important for those who <clears throat> practice from the other position, from academia or from as critics or so on, to constantly be aware of this. Um, because oftentimes we see a lot of literature coming out that talks about things like mulids or uh, certain practices. Graffiti, of course, after 2011 got a, a good... Um, you know, amount of attention, but I felt a lot of the authors are unaware of their positions. Uh, either they sort of dive in and pretend like they've been there all along, um, even though they've probably parachuted from out of sight uh, for a short period of time, wrote a nice book or an essay and left. Um, or um, it's totally accepting of sort of the outside position as if it doesn't exist. And I think positionality and sort of labels and categories are quite important in this. So this is one thing. The other thing is uh, the production of different discourses that are in different registers. Um, when I first came in 2010, as an RC fellow, actually, this is why I ended up coming here <laughs> to do my PhD research, um, my immediate um, observation was there's a lot to talk about in the city, but there's no natural platform to do this. Um, and I'm not a person that was uh, very confident in sort of putting out there rants and, uh, and opinion pieces or whatever you want to call it, because sometimes my Facebook posts just end up being ranty and I delete half of them. And that actually reminds me of another problem, which is the archive of the discourse is so ephemeral. Uh, but I ended up starting a blog. And like, like Nadir said, the blog um, gained some traction, and I think because there was so much happening in the platform, in the city, that, uh, that people needed to discuss. What was interesting for me is that people started to send voluntarily their um, content to be posted on the platform instead of starting their own, which meant that for a moment they thought, okay, I have something to say, but I'm not going to commit to starting something all new altogether. So it became sort of a, a, a net that catches things that are float, floating down the stream. Sometimes they're by people who have never written anything. Sometimes it's by people who come from very different registers. 
um, academic or, or, or not. Um, sometimes it was in Arabic, in English, and Amaya, it depends. Um, and then also content from other cities that oddly enough wanted to be um, posted publicly on something called Cairo Observer, uh, which is interesting because I think you know when you read the New Yorkers, you're not only reading about New York or something like this. You know, so it's, it's not an, an odd concept. But um, I think what was interesting for me to realize afterwards what that what Cairo Observer was is that it's a it's a multi-voice platform. Um, I sort of try to constantly be. Um, to navigate the, the space uh, of the city by having something to say about different aspects of it, but the fact that it wasn't just one person speaking with their voice, and uh, as much as possible to be aware of not claiming any authority also, I think is really important, because a lot of this uh, gets, uh, a lot of this kind of discourse gets overwhelmed by pretension of authority that doesn't necessarily feel uh, valid uh, at all times. Not that it has to, but I mean, it's something to discuss and to negotiate. Um, but anyway, so after that, also my practice, uh, or defining who I am as, am I an academic, or what am I doing, um, frustration kicked in, and finding that, um, realizing that there's also kind of a parasitical relationship with Egypt. A lot of academics, uh, for example, come here for a fellowship, or, and, and again, this is not a criticism directed to individual people, but it's something, it's a condition that we should acknowledge that um, a lot of knowledge is produced about Egypt that's never available in Egypt. It's never translated in Egypt, it's never read in Egypt, but it gets people tenure jobs uh, somewhere else, it gets them fellowships somewhere else. So it's a kind of a parasitical relationship with a place where, especially if we're talking about, let's say, um, someone who can afford the time and space and resources to observe and to write about these things, I feel there is a bit of responsibility given the condition, the lack of institutions that do things like archiving the popular, um, publishing them, to actually give back in some way by producing content that's locally relevant, creating spaces, even if they're momentary, a small exhibition, uh, open your collection of whatever you collect and make it visible, visit, um, open for discussion as opposed to being constantly invisible. Um, and so, um, and hence I ended up doing things like curating exhibitions, uh, if I can, to do it here. We can talk later on, but probably in the museum segment about, um, about limitations um, in, in doing more activity like this. Yeah, I think I've passed my five minutes, but so I'll stop. I, yeah, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, we need to have our own thing. But yeah, I wanted to build on what you said about uh, making it part of a collective and being a net for things, because I think those have been some of the most successful projects are ones that are multivocal. Uh, you know, one of the, the difficult things about producing uh, content uh, in online, producing for a popular audience, is that you get into a situation where there's so much you have to produce. So for instance, if you have a book tube, which I thank God do not, um, you have to I mean, generally speaking, produce a new segment every week or you lose your audience, right? So that, that creates a lot of pressure on that individual one person in order to continually uh, produce. I, I do have this ridiculous um, literary blog, which I've only been doing since 2009, so I don't think anybody was reading it as a child. <laughs> I was 17. I was a child. <laughs> But, um, so it, it's something that's updated on a daily basis, um, uh, which, you know, it initially, uh, you know, which in some cases does create this 
like strain, like, oh, the audience awaits whatever. I have to produce something tomorrow. I have to create something every day. So it, the, the only way I think it's sustainable, since there's no funding for this sort of thing that I know of, and, and you know, the, the funding would create all sorts of additional issues, uh, it is to have it to be a network of people. And, and that also creates sort of a wonderful sort of anti-canonization and being radically open to other people whose positions are different from, from mine, whose ideas about what is good literature are different from mine, opens up um, a space where I am not the sort of the literary tastemaker, the, the person who defines what is uh, literature about, but rather I'm, I'm simply creating a platform where people can kind of argue about these kinds of things. So I think it's more, both more sort of radically open and interesting, and then also more sustainable <coughs> if, if it's a, it's a multi-voiced project versus some of these single-voiced projects where it's, it's all on one person to, to create content and make up for Yeah, and also um, the, the one person sort of project is problematic because um, not only, just there's a kind of scarcity, I mean, uh, of information, of perspectives that actually enter the sphere of the popular. The, when I say the popular in this incident, I, I mean, in this case, I, I mean, um, speaking and, you know, writing in general reading magazines. I, I, the people that I studied when I was looking into the history of modern architecture in Egypt, the architects from the 30s and 40s, they were not speaking to each other only. They were publishing in general reading magazines like Al-Musawwar, like in the Queen of Dunya, like Sabah al-Khair. So there was an interest and in an, an understanding of the utility of these more general reading platforms to speak about something specialized like architecture. And I think this already points to a very different um, set of practices that simply are not really parallel today. Uh, nobody uh, in the architecture profession, which is already suffering from quite a lot of problems, I would say, for several decades. Um, so, uh, but nobody's actually trying to engage with the public, let alone try to raise the, the standard of the profession itself. And I think the profession was, you know, those not, are not mutually exclusive. I think the profession in that period was hitting a high note, partly because it was so engaged and interested in public uh, view and what the public thinks about this project or that idea or that proposal. Um, and it's a kind of a checks and balances system. So the more people write in outside of the natural venue, venues that would speak to their own audience, that puts a certain kind of pressure on them to speak a different way, to think differently, to produce content in a different way. And I think this is really what we're missing, the kind of, um, we're all kind of on our own little islands and there are no boats or bridges, and so there's no way for us to really, uh, even though we're not that far, uh, as an audience, as different practitioners who speak about different topics, like the city, for example, or literature. Yeah, well, I think literature, absolutely the same. At mid-century, uh, you know, people were publishing in these large, you know, there were also fewer venues, right? So big, large, um, uh, like serializing a novel in Al-Ahram, you know, uh, that would be read very widely by by many different people in, in the population, whereas now the different areas where you publish are much more fragmented and islanded. Yes. Multi-local projects, or even having a community when you build one of these projects, also acts like an ethical check, right? Like it makes sure that you are holding to communal standards, that you're asking yourself these important questions of how do I produce things, why do I produce things, how is it being consumed, how will this be received? Um, and I think that's extremely important when, as Muhammad said, we're very parasitical academics, where people who study things can often be parasitical because we take something, we portray it, and then what do we do? How else do we get it out there? Um, I would even call it almost neo-colonial, Muhammad, not 
case of the Middle East. So. I didn't want to say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's something else that I think about constantly, which is the pretension of ideas, right? Like some of us are being paid to think about things all day, right? We're being paid to stare at a wall and to fantasize about the idea and to like, you know, ask these questions. We have the time, but that isn't necessarily something everyone has. There's the way we package ideas, the language we use is also extremely important. Mm. Well, do you want to talk about language? Or do I kind of yeah, go, go ahead. I mean, I was thinking, um, yeah, so going back to sort of how do we speak about these issues. So the, the, the divide between the practice of popular culture, people who do things that we consider to be popular culture, and then the perspectives of scholarship or criticism or even documentation is all, there's such a, a gulf. Um, and I think, um, you know, one of the interesting people, maybe just to bring them up, I, I don't know why it just came through my mind, Zahmar Abu Bakr was a, was a graffiti artist and so on, and he, he doesn't necessarily write, he doesn't have the, the, the tools, but he's embedded in the context in which he's practicing in his own art. Um, so I think that's an interesting kind of position. I'm not sure how it can translate into knowledge that goes beyond the individual and his experience, but, you know, that's something that's missing from the way we talk about the popular, for example. Um, and then, you know, what do you do in a context in which illiteracy is high, uh, in which uh, mainstream channels are censored, dominated by very singular narratives? So the radio used to, we used to talk about the radio, the newspaper, the magazine as a, as a form of uh, popular cultural production, uh, popular knowledge, and so on. But how do you actually do that in a context in which, you know, there's one magazine that represents an entire field and it's supervised by a state entity and everything is censored and limited. So even those typical platforms, and this is perhaps why social media comes in as an interesting outlet to, to look at what people are writing, but again, the problem with that is it's difficult to archive, it's ephemeral, and the language is in terms of the approach, not like the actual language is, it's so drastically different that it needs to be filtered, made available uh, for people to be able to understand the milieu that they're in. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in part the fragmentation was a response to, you know, a suffocation of some of these, main, you know, big mainstream venues. So then I can go and uh, publish in Facebook, and I can reach a relatively large audience with my short story that I, you know, I'm not going to publish in Allahram anymore. Um, but then on the other hand, it is all these different small audiences. This person doesn't know what. The, I, I think one of the, the major challenges that I see about Arabic literature writ large is that this, you know, if you're writing for this audience, these people who know what you're working on, that these these people do not. That there is, there, you know, the, the distribution of knowledge about the literature is is very fragmented. So, I, I really think that there is so much room for. Um, uh, uh, this popular criticism that is deeply embedded in in writers who are also writing and who are uh, who are contributing to, to to literature and you know this the, the same kind of sophisticated literature that that used to be available more widely um, writing about um, literature from from you know around not just their bubble but making broad connections. I think networking is, creating networks is, is the key. Yeah. That's been somewhat successful. And I think also alternative platforms like YouTube, and they're not really alternative anymore now that they're all like a decade old. Right? Right. Um, but, but, you know, YouTube content has really been interesting for me. Um, 
podcasts, I think, is still speaking to a very specific audience. Uh, so it's not really out there in the realm of uh, more accessibility, let's say. Um, yeah, I mean, another thing is that, in particular, with regards to Arabic audiences, we have a handful of Arabic language podcasts, and there being now, there's a couple of venture capital-funded uh, projects that will hopefully get wide sort of reception, but the question I get the most about my podcast is where can I listen to it? How can I listen to it? And then, to a lot of people, and this is across generations, across demographics, I have to explain what a podcast capture is, I will send them the link to the SoundCloud, it depends on the individual, but that's another thing, is podcasts are a very niche audience. You elect to do it. It's not sort of like television. You don't really have podcast advertising to the same extent, advertising for podcasts, that is. Um, the same extent you do, even on YouTube. On YouTube, you tend to get ads generated for YouTube channels while you're watching another YouTube video. And the algorithm really helps. I also don't think, I worry constantly that podcasting, right now we have a couple of platforms that are charging. Um, for access to material kind of like, you know, for example, Netflix or Hulu, but they're featuring a lot less content. So are you really likely to pay $5 a month, $5 US dollars a month, for access to, 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 to this channel when you could be spending that on a Netflix account or food? Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I know of some Arabic literary podcasts that are paywalled, and I think that that's probably not the not the way forward. Um, it, it's true though, um, YouTube has become a mass medium and that people people are watching these, even the literary YouTubes from, from Egypt. But thus far, the the language of them and and the way that they're structured is is, is still very um, incipient, you know, like it's very listicle oriented, it's very what, you know, what's just been long-listed for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, that sort of thing, rather than trying to create something new out of this form, which I think will happen. Uh, I mean, I think this kind of intersection between YouTube and literary criticism has great potential. We just haven't, it just hasn't happened yet. Mm. Another point maybe that I thought is interesting to raise is um, uh, how sanitized narratives are even in the official sphere. Uh, there's there's so much sanitation uh, about, let's say, within museum spaces for how we talk about certain cultures. Um, I mean, I was, I was thinking recently about why my network with other people in the region who are also interested in cities and architecture, why is it so weak? And I thought, and, and why is the uneven distribution of resources so stark, you know? Uh, I always say that there's such a wealth of content and talent in a place like Cairo, uh, probably Amman, you know, Palestine, and so on, um, and almost zero resources. But then you have the Gulf, which has enormous resources that are being shoved. I mean, the Gulf just paid for the, the U.S. pavilion at the Expo 2020. Just wanted to point that out. They're not paying for Egypt or some other regional country. So there's a kind of a misuse of resources uh, where talent is just sitting and rotting sometimes and. Uh, you know, uh, is confronted with um, hopelessness, <laughs> essentially, because you can't translate your ideas into something that's consumable, that's accessible, that engages in a conversation that's ongoing, in a museum space, in a publication that's weekly, monthly, uh, you know, regular uh, community type of meetings. These are the things that activate those spaces. On the other hand, you have sort of these resources being shipped into um, not the most productive uh, outlets. And for example, I remember when we were in the London Design Biennale, we raised uh, money just barely to be present. Meanwhile, the Saudi pavilion, the UAE pavilion, had hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce very 
apolitical content, of course, that's meant to be uh, functional as branding. So the narrative gets um, produced about the popular, gets produced, invested in, displayed um, in a very sanitized way as a form of branding. Uh, and then, unfortunately, when I read the reviews, mostly English uh, speaking, mostly by journalists or critics who have never been to the Middle East, but they've been to the Saudi display in London, gleaming reviews. Wow, you know, like we've seen something we've never heard of before. So we end up in this very uh, problematic situation where narratives are constantly being sanitized and channeled in this particular way, while so many other alternatives are being um, and even just as a last example, I'm sorry I spoke too much, but um, I remember when I started the British Museum job, I was given this crazy tour of all the storehouses as much as I can see. Um, and probably this is not something that you were prepared to hear on a Friday morning, but why not? I'll say one of the drawers in the, one of the many storerooms had these phallic objects, ancient Egyptian phallic objects. And I you know, sort of looked at the curator, like, what are these? And kind of they don't really want to tell me, but they look essentially like they're ancient Egyptian sexuals. That's not part of our narrative. That's not what we uh, are teaching people to think about what ancient Egyptian society included. And it's so much shaped by contemporary perceptions of what and what we should talk about, what we shouldn't talk about, what it's included, what's included. So these things will probably just stay in a drawer forever. And no one will ever, ever think of ancient Egyptians as sexual beings because we just think of them as people who do these, as, you know, um, static, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and so how can, how does a contemporary society that so much roots itself in its ancient past able to think of it itself as in different light if even the ancient is being so sanitized and is taken out of the context of the popular in terms of conversations? Right, and oh wait, I have eight seconds, so I'm going to say. Sorry, so sorry, <laughs> so sorry. I'm going to say that the the the, um, the money that exists in the Gulf also has uh, an, an influence even on this incipient booktube sphere. I know of at least two popular young uh, Egyptian booktubers who have been taken to um, events in, in Dubai training, uh, you know, and following International Prize for Arabic Fiction, Sheikh Zayed Book Award, these sort of new ways of canonizing uh, Arabic literature are, are formed out of these Gulf initiatives. RC is excited to be able to provide you, the listeners, particularly those who weren't able to join us in Cairo, with access to the symposium. So we are collaborating with the Maidan. The Maidan is an online publication out of George Mason University and is hosting the essay roundtable and podcasts from the symposium. We've included the link in the show notes. We thank you for listening and invite you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RC National.